The weird thing about the whole Palm Sunday path, when you're following this path, it's kind of a, a surreal because we know how this path ends. It's going to end on the cross. And it's going to be a pretty dramatic ending that changes the world. But only Jesus knows that. So in this moment, on this Sunday, he's, he's going to be sweating blood thinking about that later. But this Sunday, he doesn't, he doesn't reveal what's happening in the future. All that we see in this moment as he's approaching Palm Sunday is the crowds are waving these palms. They're throwing their robes down so that he won't even walk on the dirt. They're, they're praising him, Hosanna, as the king of all kings. And in just a few days, he's going to be on that cross. And he does it anyway. We're shocked. We're amazed because he does it anyway. And why does he do it? Because he knows that on April 13th, 2014, there's going to be a group of people that are taking in this moment. They're going to be in a place called Canyon Hills Friends Church talking about this moment in all of history. And it's a life-changing moment. And he does it anyway, knowing the effect that it will have on you and I as we read it thousands of years later amazed by what our king did. It takes Matthew 8 chapters to tell this story of the passion of the Christ. It takes Mark 6 chapters, Luke 5 and a half, John 9 and a half, for a total of 29 chapters in the four Gospels of the Bible. When you put that up on the first 30 years of Jesus' life, it takes four chapters to tell the first 30 years, and that includes his birth. So when you talk about this moment it's pretty big. It's a pretty big point in all of history. And I understand a few people only come to church on, around this time and around Christmas time. But if you're going to choose, this is a pretty good one to choose. Because when you look at how much the Bible spends on this moment, this week, it is the most important week that we need to know about and we need to understand for the rest of our life. And what I find kind of interesting about the whole story is that it begins with a donkey. You see it goes into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. I find it funny because I, just, I can imagine in the minds of the disciples in that moment. Jesus calls all his disciples up in a huddle. He says, all right, guys, come here. Kind of a big moment about to happen. We're going to go into Jerusalem. And it's estimated there's about 2.5 million people in Jerusalem because of the Passover that's happening in this moment. And it's one of the few times in all of history that the entire world is under one power so anybody can get there and the whole world can look in at this moment. So this is the moment he chooses to absolutely do something that's going to go down in history as the biggest moment of all. And all the disciples are like, yeah. Yeah, totally. They're thinking the king of all kings, it's about to be a revolution. We're going to, we're going to, this is the moment in which this new king is born. All the scripture is spoken about this moment. But that, that's when he says, all right, I want you to go get me a donkey because I'm going to ride in on it. And you know, the disciples had to be like, a donkey? I mean, how about a chariot? There's some sweet chariots. I can get you one on a discount. We'll bring this chariot in, or at least a horse, preferably white, and we'll just bring you in, and it'll be this amazing moment. But he says, a donkey. Why a donkey? Because he's completing the Old Testament, and he's about to launch the New Testament, this church age, 
And in, in Matthew 21, it says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. My guess is there are many times that we have went to God and said, Why a donkey? And you may not have said those exact words because that would be odd to say those exact words. But the point here is, why a donkey is, why, God, am I dealing with this sickness? Why, Lord? Because I, with my heart and my passion for you, if I was well, I could do so much more. Why a donkey? Or we say, why cancer? Why am I dealing with this? If I was like the leader of the world, I could do some huge things for you, but you choose this. Or why am, why am I a salesman barely surviving week to week? If I was the boss, do you know how much I would do for you? How much I could give? How much I could start? Why a donkey, Lord? Why am, why am I moving when Southern California is so beautiful? Why Fresno, Lord? Why a donkey when there's so much more I could do, right? Which brings us in your notes to point one, that we are supposed to respond with obedience. The disciples, they don't even seem to hesitate. There's no verse of hesitation. Maybe they knew about the prophecy, but I doubt it because they didn't know so many other prophecies. The donkey one couldn't have been very high on the list. So they are just responding with obedience. They don't hesitate, and neither should we. We should do what he tells us immediately because he's got a bigger plan. Another way to say it in your notes is trust and obey. If you're a parent, you get this. As a parent, you tell your son, hey, you know the uh, broken skateboard that you're taking to the top of that 90-degree hill and then riding down into the rush hour traffic? That's not the best approach. I, I have some bigger plans for you. And your son's saying, you're such a killjoy. You're like, no, I just want you to survive past this day. We understand as parents, trust and obey. Saying to our kids, you know what? How about you be quiet and just trust and obey me, Right? Am I the only one? Okay. We get it as parents. How much more would our God in heaven be saying, I understand why a donkey, but trust and obey. Trust and obey. I've got a really big plan going, and you're part of it. Trust and obey. The disciples went in and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, on them and he sat on the coats. We look at this scripture and we say, Big deal. The disciples did what Jesus told them to do. Yeah, yeah, move on. But that's because we live in hindsight. We're always reading the Bible in hindsight. They're living in the experience. You've got to put yourself in their experience. When Jesus starts his miracle ministry campaign, it starts with his mom coming over and saying, all right, I do whatever Jesus says. We need more wine. And so Jesus says, okay, you see those empty vessels over there? Uh, dump them in that water and then take it to the bride and groom. And somebody's whispering in the corner going, um, I know the bride and groom's a little tipsy. They've had some wine already, but they're going to know it's water. But that verse isn't in there. Again, they're like, okay, and they do it. They trust and obey. You want me to walk on water? Okay. You, just a few bread and fish for 5,000? Okay. It's this trusting, this obedience that is changing lives one after the other. And we, where do we need to say, Stop saying, why a donkey, and say, okay, I'm going to trust and obey. I'm going to respond with obedience. 
the next thing we see them do is they're throwing down their clothes. They're throwing these clothes down and they are putting down all these different branches and stuff. This is a very interesting thing to see them doing. And again, in hindsight, we know in just a few days, they're going to be over here yelling, crucify him on the cross, the same people. And it's hard for us to step back from that and say, they're yelling and screaming how great he is, Hosanna, Messiah, when they're going to be yelling, crucify him in just a few days. But you have to step back and realize where they are. A lot happens from here to there. Where they are in this moment is they see the king and he is coming. They see this savior coming. No more Roman occupancy. No more religious persecution. They see this person that's doing miracles and healing people and giving food and taking care of them and someone who actually cares about them so much more than anyone's ever cared before. So what do they do? They praise him as king and they don't even want him to walk on the dirt. They're throwing their own clothes down so he will come in as the king. What I would call this in our modern day society, is responding with the red carpet treatment. Whenever we think someone's really special, we throw this red carpet down and we say, come in on this red carpet because we don't even want you to walk on the sidewalk. It's how special you are. We, when we talk about our king of all kings, need to be responding with red carpet treatment. You are so incredible in my life. You are such, you are so important that I don't even want you walking on dirt. I don't even want you walking on sidewalk. I want you to experience this red carpet treatment. Just prior to this passage in Scripture, when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, he heals two blind men. So they don't know much, but they know this man is different. This king is different. Do we know that? Do we understand that he is special? We sing about him, We put bumper stickers on our cars about him. We pray before meals really quickly about him. But do we give him red carpet treatment? Here's how we would do that. Jesus told us exactly how in Luke 9, 48, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Matthew 25, he says, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. When we are welcoming others and loving other people, that is what we are doing for Jesus. That is when we're treating Jesus with this red carpet treatment. How did you do that this morning? When you were at home taking care of your family, getting them ready to come here, did you give them the red carpet treatment as they came here? As you were driving down the beautiful freeways of L.A., did you give people the red carpet treatment around you? When you walked into these doors, how did you greet those around you? We can constantly give people red carpet treatment. I think where we get caught up with is the statement, least of these. Least of these actually throws us a bit. Because, of course, the widow, the poor, the orphan, all of those, of course we're going to love those. If you don't love those... You've got a real problem we should talk about on another day. The issue is, are you doing it on a daily basis to everyone around you? Do you think that Christ cares about everyone, including the people in this room, including the people out on the streets? Are we treating people as if, okay, if, I was to get, if that was Jesus and I wanted to give him the red carpet treatment, what would I do for him? And what he shows us over and over is this humility that surprises people. One of my favorite stories is when Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. 
But what's interesting about that story is he doesn't go out the door and try and find the dirtiest feet down the neighborhood. He's doing it to his friends in the room. It was customary as you would walk into a home that they would either, the the person that owned the home would wash the feet of the people that came in or they would hire a servant to do it. It was a customary thing to do. And when no one does it, Jesus humbles himself and says, no problem, I'll do it, and begins doing it to his friends. And they are shocked by his humility. The point we need to see with red carpet treatment is people should be shocked by our humility. They should be shocked that we love and care for others so much that it's actually a little odd how much you care about other people. And in your mind, you have to say, I'm doing it because this is how I would treat my king if he was here. He created these people. He loves these people. And so I'm going to love these people. Amen? Next thing we see the people do here is they're responding with praise and worship. The crowds that went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Are we responding with praise? We just did this entire series called Honoring God. This is a big deal. How we praise God matters. This word Hosanna, it means save us now. When they said son of David, they're proclaiming him as the Messiah. So when he's coming in, What they're saying is, save us now. Messiah, save us. We need a Savior. They knew who he was and why he was there. And so they were shouting, God, save us. I'm not sure we understand that. The modern-day Christian, I think, really struggles with this point because we should be crying out, God, save us from this place. They were asking to be saved because they didn't like where they were. They understood that this doesn't all make sense. This Roman occupancy, this, the way the religious, the, the persecution happens, all of this doesn't make sense, and we need a Savior. So here he is, and so they're praising him as Hosanna, save us now. We sort of pray a toleration prayer. God, keep me, keep me safe as I'm flying. God, keep me safe on the roads. Keep my kids from any danger. We sort of pray toleration because we want a world that's a little safer. We want to have a few more comforts. So we're always praying for that next comfort in life. And I think, I think we're missing the point because Hosanna is about saving us because we know something isn't quite right. And what you have for us, the heaven you talk about, the heaven on earth that you talk about, we're not there yet. So Hosanna, Messiah, save us now. We need you as a Savior. Are we praying like that? Are we praising like that? Are we lifting up God and honoring him with worship because we want a Savior? Listen to David in Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make it boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. I see your prayers every week. And a lot of you, I know you're praying for loved ones to come to know Christ, to escape from hell, to experience heaven, to experience who God is. And I join you in these prayers and many of your prayers. I'm really just pointing out some fairly obvious things in Scripture that we need to be careful of. We need to make sure that when we praise, we praise them as the Savior, And we actually need a Savior. We need to praise God, Hosanna, because he saves us. 
Notice what they do next. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? 2.5 million people smashed into a very tiny space. They would notice this really interesting thing happening around them. Who is this? The crowds answered, well, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. They responded with enlightenment. Now, I use the word enlightenment here because I don't think they know how to respond. They're all, well, he's, uh, they're telling about him. He's a prophet. He's from Nazareth, and uh, that's in uh, Galilee. That's, I, that's how I see them answering the question because they're not quite sure how to respond. Peter said, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. We should be ready to give anyone an explanation about Jesus. So these crowds, as they're coming in and saying, what's going on here? All they could respond with is what they knew. What did they know? They knew he was a prophet. They knew where he was from. They knew what he was doing inside of them. And that was enough. They responded with enlightenment because they said who he was in their life. They were giving their testimony. This is what I know. Now we have the hindsight of the whole story. So we can respond with what we know. How has God changed you? What does the blood of Jesus mean to you? If you respond with that enlightenment, you don't have to be a scholar when somebody asks you about Jesus. What you have to be is someone who's been changed by him. And if you can, if you can tell that story, well, he, he's from heaven and he came to the earth and he's changed my life, that's enough. We respond with enlightenment. I understand that articulating the creator of the universe to our coworkers and the Starbucks attendant and telling how he guides us and how he dwells within us and all those details, that is not an easy task. But all we are supposed to do here is say how he's changed our life, our testimony. Here's a huge secret of the Bible. Their response to you isn't on you. What we are told to do is be ready with the response, to go and tell people about him, to tell of the change that's happened within us. We're told to do that. We're supposed to be telling people all the time, responding with enlightenment. Their response to it is between them and God. If they would like to go to hell for the rest of their life, hey, you know, that's their choice. And that's a horrible choice. And it saddens me because I have been responded to that way. It hurts. It cuts me. But that's between them and God. And God is doing something in them. And there's going to be change that happens. People's lives are going to be changed. What we have to do is just keep going and going and going and pressing on and responding with enlightenment and telling people about how you've been changed by this incredible, incredible story. This incredible man who walked this path and ended up on the cross. Which brings us to the next response. The response of denial. The events begin to move really fast at this point. If you're reading the Bible, it's like it just jumped in gears. Because the miracles, the prophecies, the teachings just go bam, bam, bam. Every paragraph is just an incredible word that many sermons have been spoken about. Because the speed, it's as if he only knew he had a few days left. So he had to get it all in right here. It just speeds up so fast. And then chapter 26 starts with the religious elite plotting to kill him. 
and they're looking for a way to kill this guy because people are being changed by him. There's something happening here. So they get Judas, who when Judas sees this expensive perfume going on the feet of Jesus, he says, that's enough. I can't take this anymore. And he goes to the religious elite and says, I'll sell him. I'll give him to you. I'll hand him over to you for 30 pieces of silver. When we do not understand him as the Savior, when we do not understand him as the Savior, we don't trust and obey him. We don't give him any sort of red carpet treatment. We definitely don't find ways to praise him. Instead, we deny him. And this is a devastating mistake. But this is where hindsight is good. We know that this Friday... This Friday, we're going to come into this room. We're going to have communion together. We're going to worship and remember the moment on the cross. We know that Sunday, we're coming back, and Pastor Larry is going to be talking about the greatest message in all of the messages that we ever give, Jesus rising from the dead. We know that. We're excited to come back next week. We're going to bring all our friends next week because it's the best message of the whole year. He rises from the dead. We know all that, so we don't have to wait We can, in this moment, respond and say, you know what, I know how this story ends. I don't have to wait to hear it to respond. I don't have to continue to respond in denial. Colossians 2.13 says, when you were stuck in your old sin-dead life, you were incapable of responding to God. God brought you alive right along with Christ. Think of it. All sins forgiven, the slate is wiped clean, that old arrest warrant canceled and nailed to Christ's cross. He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of the sham authority at the cross, and he marched them naked through the streets. Love the message Bible, right? God knew we would struggle. He knew we'd make mistakes. It's not easy to live in this world. He knows that. He knows that he has to go to the cross. And he still did it. He still paid this ultimate price. That sin had to be judged. It had to come before God. It had to be solved. The sin problem had to be solved for justice to be real. For faith to be real. This moment has to happen. In the movie, uh, The Passion of the Christ, there's a scene that moves me. Jesus is just bloody from head to foot. He's carrying his cross down the Via Dolorosa. And he sees his mother, Mary, coming down an alleyway. And he stops. He looks at her with this love. And she comes running up to his side, crying uncontrollably in this moment. And as she's she's crying, as she's running towards him, she says, my son, you can imagine the mom, my son, please stop this. Stop them. And you think that he's going to respond with some sort of pity and anguish. But he looks into her eyes and he says, Don't be afraid. It's almost complete. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He knew that he had come to satisfy this claim of justice demanded by a holy God. He came to die in our place. He knew that it had to be done. And on this day, when we begin to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, it's a direct quote from Psalm 118. It says, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
God is the Lord and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice, bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. He knew what had to be done and he did it. Now we know what has to be done. Are you ready to do it? Which brings us to our final response, the response of decision. In Luke 19, it says, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known, catch this, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jerusalem was completely destroyed in 70 AD. In 142 days, 1.5 million people will be killed. Why? Because they missed the moment of the visitation. God held them accountable for the prophecies of Daniel 9. God expects us to know our scripture. And they knew their scripture, but they missed him. God expects us to know our scripture. Are we going to miss him? It doesn't matter what you believe in the moment when we're all judged and we will come to this moment of accountability in our life, you will be judged and you will have to say what you did or you didn't do for Christ. I was in Watts a few years ago, Watts, Los Angeles, and I was on a mission trip and the strangest thing happened to me. I walk up and I'm just talking to different homeless people and this one man comes to my, my face, this homeless man, and he says, what are you doing here? And it was, a weird, it was like West Side Story because all of a sudden he had all these homeless people around him and then the people I came with were all around me and they, they created a circle and I'm thinking, all right, here we go. <laughs> this is going to get interesting. It was odd. And he, he said this and I go, well, I'm, I'm here to tell people about Jesus. So here's what happens. He takes a dollar bill from his pocket and he says, you're going to tell me about Jesus? You can't even tell me what's in your own pocket. You can't even tell me what's on this dollar bill. And then he gives me a history lesson of every symbol on the dollar bill, which there's a lot of symbols, and the history was amazing. It went on for a while. And he says, you're going to tell me about God when you can't tell me what's in your own pocket. And all his friends were like, oh, man, it was awesome. They were so excited. And I had no idea what I was going to say. And so I take the dollar bill from him, and I said, you know, this dollar bill, this is, this is a hamburger, which sounds strange, I know. This means a hamburger to me. If I get enough of these, I can pay my rent. I know as I obtain more, I can sort of attain things, and it will take care of me, and it will buy stuff. I don't know much about what's on this, but I do know how this changes my life as I gain it. And I don't know everything about my God. He's huge. But I do know how he's changed me. And that's what I can tell you. And all my friends were like, oh, yes. It was awesome. And absolutely no one's lives were changed. 
because he had found a way to intellectualize why this God isn't real, why it doesn't make sense. And the truth is, a lot of people do that. In his mind, he didn't need a savior. He's living on the streets, he's homeless, but he doesn't need a savior. Some of us live on these these beautiful houses on the hill above and don't think we need a savior. It really doesn't matter where you live, what you have. You have to come to the point in life when you say, you know what? I need a savior. And that is the point in which you decide. How will you respond? Will you respond with a decision that says, Christ is my savior? Let's pray. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Not going to pull you up front, not going to do anything weird. But if you're in this room and you're saying, I need to respond, I do need a Savior. I want to give you that opportunity to take a first step and just say, yes, I need a Savior. I want you to raise your hand and say, that's me. Pray for me. I need a Savior. If you're in this room and you're saying, I need that, I need to respond because I really do need a Savior. Quickly put your hand up. Say, that's me. That's me. Amen. Anyone else? God, we love you. And we can't fathom what it was like to come in on Palm Sunday knowing what awaits by Friday. But you did it anyway. So God, we will spend our entire life trying to make our lives worthy of that moment. We love you. We give you our lives, and you are our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.